BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay. Local news to keep you rooted. More people have died of drug overdoses in San Francisco in the first three months of this year compared to the same time last year. And public officials are trying a bunch of different things to address it. In April, Governor Gavin Newsom sent the National Guard to the Tenderloin to help round up drug suppliers. And just last week, Mayor London Breed announced plans to open up a command center downtown, targeting the city's drug crisis. Many have argued that criminalizing people struggling with addiction is actually going to do more harm. But no matter what side of the debate you're on, most people can agree that something needs to be done to keep people alive. But how do we decide what that something is? Back in December, we made this episode on the narratives coming out of the Tenderloin and what happens when the area's drug crisis goes viral. It's a story about the outsized role that images and videos can play in shaping our responses to this really complex crisis. And today, we're going to share that episode with you. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. I started thinking more about the way that the Tenderloin was being portrayed after the Language Center opened. Holly J. McDeed is a reporter and producer for KQED. 
after that point, there was a lot of national attention to San Francisco because this was when Mayor London Breed had just declared a state of emergency in the Tenderloin. Fewer than 10 days since San Francisco opened its new linkage center, part of the Tenderloin Emergency Initiative, reports of open drug use at the center have surfaced. Now at five, changing the drug culture of San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood. The video is startling. The neighbor who recently moved to the Tenderloin shot the video. It says the men on the street are drug dealers. He's repeatedly told to stop dealing in front of his apartment building. When he lets them know he's recording, one of the men hurls a knife at the window, shattering it. So the area was getting a lot of attention. And then so I just started to think more about the images I was also seeing on on Twitter, uh, videos, images showing people who had, in some cases, overdosed and died. He turned the camera around. I just seen just a plethora of drug dealers and uh, homeless people using, smoking off oil and and whatnot. I mean, nothing new, right? Nothing new that you out of the ordinary that you see, but it was just overloaded with these types of individuals, and they had basically hijacked the transit uh, stop right there on Eighth and Mission. I just started to think more about like, what is this? this mean? What is the impact? And also just why are people sharing images like this um, that are going viral in some cases? And what, what does it mean for how we're addressing the drug overdose crisis in San Francisco? Well, when you started to talk to people, what is the range of opinions that you heard about the role that images and videos play in the way that we talk about issues of drug addiction and homelessness? There were people who felt like generally the way that images are shared of people using drugs on social media puts those people, their privacy at risk. So it can make it more difficult for people to get jobs. It can lead to people they've been trying to escape finding them. And then on the other side of that, uh, I think there's a lot of people who do feel like this is the reality of San Francisco and that these sharing these images so widely forces the conversation to continue and it brings attention to a real problem. You know, the photographs keep the story alive and the conversations keep the story moving. So it moves in a direction where people are truly paying attention. So Adam Mesnick, he owns a deli in in the South of Market neighborhood, and he considers himself a citizen journalist. He runs a Twitter account, Better Soma. His Twitter account's pretty popular. Yeah, he's got 14,000 followers. It's always kind of been a venting mechanism for me or a, a way to share what I really see. So he shares a lot of pictures of people in pretty dire straits. He has shared people who fatally overdosed. He also shares videos of people that he's met. I mean, I think that I probably check on every single person underneath a blanket that I've ever seen in San Francisco since as far as I can remember backwards. And the reality is, is people just walk right by. How does he get these pictures? Adam says that these are pictures when he's walking the streets of San Francisco as he does. These are people that he sees. So all of the photos, again, are in my direct line of path. I don't go out of my way for the photos. I never plan the photos. And he's, he says that he tries to get consent when possible. 
He says he'll give them some money, some food um, in exchange for being able to take their their pictures. In his view, he, he does have permission to use them. And, and usually these people don't care. It's, it really it's I give them ten dollars for a photo. So the minute you say ten dollars, there really isn't a lot of conversation about where, why or what. It's either a yes or a no. There are some people who are dealing with addiction that he's kind of kept in touch with over the years. Um, so he shares videos of those folks, too. What's his argument about why he thinks doing this, about documenting folks that he passes by on the streets, is an important thing to do? He's got a few different arguments, but first and foremost, he says that sharing these photos is a way to bring attention, that it gets city officials to take note. A lot of my Twitter account has always been a character that attracts attention because it is real and truthful and really points out what I believe to be the systemic issue, which is drug addiction. And so in that way, he feels like he is bringing attention to a problem and that that's urgently needed and that a lot of people want to ignore. It's a very valid opinion that you have a problem with the photo, but I have a bigger problem with the way the situation is being handled now. I want to move on to folks who kind of have a different opinion about whether or not doing something like this is ethical. Can you introduce me to Tracy Hilton Mitchell? Who is she and what is her story? So Tracy Hilton Mitchell, she is a harm reduction advocate. She also, in the 1990s, she was addicted to to heroin and she ended up being filmed in what became a cult classic called Black Tar Heroin. You know, part of the reason I came out here is peace and love and drugs and sex and whatever. That's the whole San Francisco image. And I just wanted to come out here for a vacation, but when you get strung out, you end up staying someplace a lot longer than you expect. Since then, she's written about drug addiction. What did Tracy tell you about why she agreed to be part of the film? I was very sedated during that period of my life. So Tracy told me she agreed to be part of the film because she was pretty certain that she was going to die. So when I kind of heard about what he was doing, um, I became very interested in trying to get in that story because I felt like... um, I wanted my death to be something that would show other people that heroin was not um, glamorous or it had all these different you know, problems that I did not foresee as a young person. What ended up happening was she didn't die. And she also ended up going into um, rehab and pretty much after her first try not using drugs after that. She wasn't really expecting what would happen as a result of the film at all. So she said that she really lost her privacy. Like, I really didn't think I was going to live, um, let alone uh, how my family would be embarrassed by it, how it'd be um, one of the most popular movies on HBO that year about how um, strangers felt like they knew me when I went places and like people um, were offering me drugs. The film um, premiered in the midst of the the AIDS crisis. So there was even more stigma 
around drug use then than there is now. People would like proposition her for sex and things like that. And people were calling up her mom. Nowhere in the film does do I give my last name. But there is literally three seconds in the film where they show my jail wristband with my last name. And people looked up my mother and contacted my mother. People used to call my job when I went back to when I went back to work. People would look me up where I worked. It just was not something I had. I could I could never have anticipated where that those, you know, that film would take me um, in terms of like experiences, you know, uh, and many of the negative. Did she regret being part of it? She said she did not regret being a part of the film because even to this day, she still like people still get in touch with her and they tell her about their own issues with addiction. They tell her just the impact that the film has had on their lives. And it really has allowed her to have a bigger platform for sharing her experience and talking about her recovery. It sounds like she had a pretty like mixed experience being on the other side of a camera lens. I think so. I mean, I think I think it it goes back to the question about consent. She had no way of knowing like what she was agreeing to, but she didn't know it was going to become a cult classic. And then I think similarly, people when they have their photos taken now, It's hard to know what will happen with it, and it is permanent. I mean, once it's shared on social media, you don't know who else is going to pick it up. You don't know if it's going to viral. You don't know who's going to see it. So I think the question of consent becomes even more complicated than it was for her. I think it it comes down to, like, how do you explain what this image will be used for? And, And also people might feel differently one day than three years down the line. They might have kids. They might be in a whole different place in their life. And then that image is still there on social media. It's a very complicated issue, but it very simply boils down to, are we dehumanizing people by highlighting them at sort of the worst moments of their life. I mean, something I'm thinking about, Holly, is like the way that our phones and like easy access to taking photos kind of like fuels our desire for instant gratification in a way. And I think maybe for some people, taking images or shining a light on an issue is like one way that we can feel like we're doing something. Did you talk to anyone who is thinking about documenting in a different way? When I started taking photographs, I photographed a lot of the people around me as well when I was in my active addiction. So I spoke with someone named Graham McIndra, who is a photographer and he is also in recovery from Um, heroin addiction. He photographed himself while he was in the midst of active heroin addiction. And he thought that was really important. You know, I weighed all this up and I decided I wouldn't. I took all the pictures of everybody else and put them on a hard drive. I still have them, but I put them on a hard drive and decided I'm not going to show them because this is my story. And their story is the same as my story in some ways, but I can show it through my experiences as opposed to using someone else's. 
And I think the way he thinks about this is we shouldn't just photograph people while they're using drugs. We should photograph people like in their in their day to day lives to kind of capture their full complexity. So he does think that it's important to to photograph people, but it, he thinks it's also important to include them in that process and also photograph people in recovery because he wants to show solutions and not just the problem. Every time I hear the the phrase spread awareness, I'm like, everybody's aware already. We know there's an opioid crisis. People are dying. You know, fentanyl's killing people. You know, we don't need awareness. What we need is actions. We need people helping people. We need Narcan. We need, in some cases, interventions to get people off the street and get them housed. We need access to treatment. We need a lot of things. The last thing we need is somebody saying, I'm bringing awareness to the problem. Otherwise, we're just going to stay in the same place as a society. Like, there's the photos that Adam shows, I think, show a real kind of helplessness um, and despair, whereas that is not the entirety of a person's experience with addiction. There are ups and downs. There are There is feeling um, like you're going to get out of it. There is getting help. There is getting support. And then there's starting all over again. So I think if, if we don't show people getting better and trying to get better, then the solution is harder to, to grasp. I do feel like it's, while it's maybe hard to measure how much an image affects public opinion of the drug crisis, I feel like it's pretty safe to say that they are very powerful. Do you think these images push public opinion in a specific direction? Yes, because I, I think the the images highlight suffering on San Francisco streets. That's the most visible kind of drug use. And thus the reaction becomes like, how do we not see that? And I think the images on social media are often used to make a point that we should crack down on drug dealing and we should we should arrest drug dealers and people who use drugs um, because otherwise we're letting people languish on the streets. It's the argument that is made. But that doesn't get at the wider problem of what is leading people to addiction, which is things like, I mean, isolation and, and poverty and racism and like a whole host of other systemic issues. So I think the pictures make it so that the focus is on making the problem less visible versus addressing deeper problems. How does being aware and thinking critically ultimately help us address the larger problem? I think once we start to think critically, then we start coming at the issue from a less emotional place. Because I, I think the pictures do, it's easy to look at them and get really sad, really angry, really emotional because they're hard to look at and it's a, an awful reality we live in. But I think if we take a step back and then start thinking about things like why isn't treatment more accessible? Just the number of, of lives that can be saved by things like supervised consumption sites, regardless of how um, ugly addiction can look, the fact 
that the data shows those sites save lives. Once we th- come at this issue from that lens, I, I think then we will get a little bit closer to solving this issue. Holly, thank you for your reporting on this. It definitely made me think. Thank you. That was Holly J. McDeed, a reporter and producer for KQED. We'll leave you a link to Holly's full story on this topic in our show notes. This 29-minute conversation with Holly was cut down and edited by senior editor Alan Montecilio. Maria Esquinka is our producer. She scored this episode and added all the tape. If this episode made you think, please consider sharing it with a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help others discover our show. The Bay is a production of KQED in San Francisco. Jen Chien is our podcast director. Cesar Saldana is our podcast engagement producer. And Holly Kernan is our chief content officer. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Thank you so much for listening to The Bay. Talk to you next time. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.